Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this program contains the name of a person who has died. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. When Alec O'Halloran's The Master from Manpi arrived on my desk, I thought it was a lavishly illustrated art book about the indigenous artist Mick Namarari Japaljari. In fact, it was a biography and an art book, a remarkable effort by a first-time urban white biographer from a totally different Australia to capture the story of a First Nations desert man, his culture, his astonishing artistic output, and the place where he lived and seemed to know every sandhill. Now, Alec thinks that Mick Japaljari was born at Manpi in the Western Desert in 1923, although that date is disputed by earlier sources. He died in 1998. He was a quiet man, known and respected as much for his bush and hunting skills as his art. He belonged to the Pintupi language group and became a founding figure in the hugely significant Papanya Tula art movement. It didn't feel right for me as another white person to interview the author. So I asked esteemed First Nations broadcaster Daniel Browning, presenter of The Art Show on ABC Radio National, if he would like to do it. At first, he had some reservations. What exactly was a white fella doing writing this life of a black fella? How had he done it? He said he would look at the book and get back to me. Happily, he was sufficiently intrigued and impressed to go ahead. In our exchanges about this episode, I asked Daniel why there were so few biographies of First Nations people by First Nations authors. Daniel, what was your initial reaction when I asked you to consider talking to this white fella biographer of an Aboriginal artist? Well, to be honest, I was a little flummoxed as to why a white man would, you know, embark on such a project, really. I mean, I wouldn't even as a black fella undertake this kind of personal history, biography, uh, the life of the of the man covers an inc- extraordinary period of time. But what I actually discovered in, in talking to the biographer was there was a connection and uh, he was trying to make a connection, you know, living over the same period of time and trying to find commonality. Indigenous voices are flourishing in all literary genres at the moment. It's a very wonderful thing to see. But there is one notable exception, and that is traditional conventional biography, as it is practised in whitefella culture. So there's one exception that I can think of, which is Alexis Wright's magnificent book, Tracker, Mm -hmm. which won the Stella Prize and is written in this kind of 360-degree sort of perspective. It's like a chorus of voices that she's orchestrating around the figure of Tracker Tillmouth. I absolutely loved it, but I really couldn't think of another Indigenous biography. So is it that Indigenous writers consider biography to be a not especially relevant form or that they approach it in a different way? We have a saying, nothing about us without us. For me, it's a cultural thing. I guess a biographer has to become an authority on the subject, right? I mean, that's what mm-hmm. you kind of expect in a biography, that they know every little minor detail of the lives of the person that they're exposing or exploring. And I just think there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's something in us, which, as blackfellas, which says, I can't presume to know what that person really felt. And I think the, the exception would be if someone said, can you write the life story of your grandmother? I have absolutely no hesitation in writing the life story of my grandmother because I know her. 
And I think, you know, what with Alexis Wright and with Tracker, it kind of has, a, it's an extraordinary book, but a, a massive undertaking. And, you know, Alexis was a friend of Tracker's and knew him very, very well. But still, she felt the need to consult very widely and to talk to people who, who, who Tracker had differences with, politicians, you know, land rights campaigners, people who were active in Central Australian politics, you know, cultural people as well. And that kind of, you know, multi-perspectival biography is something, is something I, I, no one could really undertake. I mean, it took years for her to do all, those, all that research and then transcribing all the interviews. So I, I just think, you know, it's, it's a massive tome, isn't it, really? I mean, I, I wouldn't set out to do something like that and only someone with the confidence and the power of someone like Alexis Wright mm. would even dare undertake that kind of biography. Before he took on this biography, Alec O'Halloran had a career in adult education and training, which equipped him with a patient and meticulous method. The rest he learnt as he went. Alec O'Halloran, welcome to the Life Sentences podcast. Thank you. Now, the question is, Alec, how did you come to write? You've never written biography before. How did you come to write this particular bi- biography about this, you know, acknowledged, extraordinary artist? But, but where were you at when you started to write this book, Master from Manpi? Well, I wasn't a writer, for one thing. I might mention, since this broadcast might be heard by Aboriginal people in the Western Desert, that it, I'm certain will contain the names of people who have passed away. I became interested in Aboriginal art in the mid-90s when I was in my mid-40s. So I think that's going to be the only age giveaway I give because I felt uh, as a non-Indigenous uh, white Australian male, I knew very little about Aboriginal art, or pretty much nothing, and hadn't really had any Aboriginal cultural education or history in my upbringing, which was you know, pretty typical of, of that era. And so I thought I should start to learn about Aboriginal art and probably in the back of my mind was this is a way about, of learning about Aboriginal people. But it wasn't a, a really big objective. In fact, I used to go to galleries on Saturday afternoons to get out of the house and <laughs> away from my work and family responsibilities, I guess. So it was, it was a, just a response to, to kind of curiosity and a, and a felt need to know more. I would have known that within Aboriginal art, within painted images, there's this idea that there's a, you know, there's a content to it. There's a, you know, that narrative or story element is pretty commonly referred to. And, you know, with that in mind, I would go and look at paintings and then I might talk to someone in a gallery or read a wall label or, you know, pick up a catalogue and you'd find out all these little, you know, kind of simple interpretations. You know, the circle in the middle of the painting is a is a, a water place, a rock hole somewhere in the desert. It has significance to the person who, who painted that picture. You know, there might be some other kind of symbols or, or you know, painterly work in the painting which could represent some kind of local topography. So all these things interested me and I kept looking. I suppose that was it for, you know, for several years. and ended up 
that kind of gallery experience led me more to an interest in Central Australia, Western Desert and Kimberley art. I just sort of took to that maybe than um, more other forms of art I was seeing or perhaps there was more of it around. So I ended up going on a an aeroplane trip with a lady called Helen Reed. She ran Outback Tours on her twin-engine Cessna to introduce people to remote Aboriginal art-producing communities as a way of learning more. And uh, so I went on one of those trips that started in Alice Springs, went up to Yundamu, which is in Walpuri country, and across the Tanami Desert, which was a bit of an experience looking at that out of a little plane window, apart from the fact that I got airsick. <laughs> we flew across the Wolf Creek Crater and down into Warman, Turkey Creek, and, and uh, went to the art centre. I got to, you know, meet, in inverted commas, um, several of the artists who were painting there, being able to watch them paint went up to Kununurra and then back to Zawan and back home again. So that was a very intense experience, seeing within five days, seeing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of paintings, meeting artists, seeing country, and that was the sort of thing that pushed me along to, to want to learn more. And learning more turned into an interest in one particular area of Aboriginal art, which is the art of the Papanyatula artists. You bought an artwork, I think, by this man, Mick Namarari Jabaljari. What, what, tell, tell me about that artwork because that was, again, another window into, into this man. When I walked in on the end wall was this large striped painting. When I say large, it was about 180 by 150 centimetres, which in the old money is 6 by 5 feet, which is one of the standard sizes that Papanyatula would cut the canvases into in preparation for painting. And even though I knew about Namarari's art from, say, auction catalogues and art catalogues and so on, I didn't ever recall seeing a painting like this. It had alternating deep brown and deep red brown bands of colour interspersed with narrow stripes of like a white and a kind of an apricot and a very soft green. And it just really stood out. The thing about having the painting, you know, in your house is that you keep looking at it. And it prompts you to think about it and it prompts you to think about the person who made it. It prompts you to think about why they made it. It prompts you to think about how they made it. It prompts you to think about where they made it. (laughs) And so, you know, those kind of questions obviously is the stuff of art history and art analysis and is is part of the process eventually of of getting into preparing a biography. There is a sequence of events during which you, you I mean, this is before you decided to write uh, The Master from Manpi, this biography of, of Mick Namarari Jabaljari, but you, there, were, there were a couple of near misses. <laughs> yeah. you, you almost got to meet him. Tell me about that, about that kind of experience of almost being in the presence of, of someone you would later dedicate much of your, your life to, to, to understanding. I had been walking up and down the, the mall in Alice Springs uh, one afternoon because there's lots of Aboriginal art galleries and, you know, one goes sticky beaking. And I went back to the Papania Tula Gallery and Daphne was there and we were chatting away and she said, oh, it's a pity you hadn't have come back 10 minutes earlier. Mick was here. I thought, what? She said, oh, yeah, he just came in. I don't know, he could have come in to do a bit of business, uh, but he, he left 10 minutes ago. I, I felt disappointed but I didn't think much of it because I probably wouldn't have known what to say anyway. I would have bumbled something out, you know, 
thanks for your art or why did no, no. I don't even know what I would have said. And given that I would have just been one of any endless number of, of white fellas turning up in his life, you know, popping questions, he, he might have <laughs> he might have just decided to keep walking. But it's funny that I did just miss meeting him and then, you know, it was only a year or two later that I had decided that I wanted to write a story about him that I don't but I don't think I called it a biography. That would be too grand. I think I wanted to write a little story about his life because he seemed to be someone of interest to me. He was one of several of the old men, or by then old men, uh, who started painting in the early 1970s at Papania, as you mentioned before. And I had got attracted to his art. I'd learned a bit about his life. Jeffrey Barden did a film about him called Mick and the Moon, for one thing. There was another documentary I may have seen by that time, I don't recall, called Benny and the Dreamers, which we come back to. That's a very significant documentary that everyone should see. And I'd learned about Namarari also from Christopher Hodges, who is the Papania Tula Gallery representative here in Sydney. They held annual exhibitions, so I could go over there and chat, chat, chat. And by the late 90s, I had felt I'd got a lot out of Aboriginal art. I'd, I'd learned a lot. I'd had a lot of fun. I'd travelled to places I wouldn't have been to. I'd started buying paintings, so that's, that's in there too. And I decided I should think about what I can do in return. And I learned at that time there's a, there's a concept called Napaji Napaji, which is I give you something, you give me something. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's a kind of an impetus to to think about giving something back. And I thought that writing a little story about Namarari's life and maybe making a little book, you know, which, which could take a couple of years working part-time because I was working part-time in my, my working life and had two kids at home and at school. And I was kind of the house husband because uh, my wife was working full-time. But I, I just thought it would be a good project to do and it, w- it would be interesting. <laughs> I don't know that I thought much about it beyond that. In the case of many Aboriginal people, many Aboriginal artists for that matter, there is a distinct lack of documentary evidence. And in, in, in Namarari's case, some, there's some extraordinary things that you've unearthed or that have been unearthed over the years about his early life. But you have to kind of confront that. It's just a, it, it's, there are cultural reasons, there are historical reasons as to why there is no, no good, solid documentary evidence for the lives of, of some Aboriginal people. Did, was, that, was that something you had to confront? Namarari did two interviews in Pinderby back around 1990 or so. And, uh, in, his own, in his own language. In his own language. And he wouldn't have had enough English to do a comprehensive account in English. Uh, and luckily the people who interviewed him, one of which had some Pindaby in his own experience, John Keane. So he had a conversational kind of interview with Namarari for over an hour, which was tape recorded out of Mount Liebig. And uh, a couple of years later, Philip Batty, did another series of oral history interviews which were video recorded and they were out at Kintor and Namarari featured in both of those. So the transcriptions of those, well, firstly the translation of those, then the transcription is what I had in front of me. And they really inspired me to learn more about him because it was, you know, I had the typical uh, kind of white fella fascination of stories of contact, Aboriginal people uh, encountering colonisation, in this case in the Western Desert. Uh, remembering that Namarari didn't meet any white people, see them till he was, I'll just say, 
eight or nine or ten, somewhere around there. Uh, and even then the contact was very fleeting. And so all of that pushed me through the thesis process. I've now got to go and study, you know, we, we, we can say a biography is the life and times of. So I need to get the times of Namarari. So I started uh, looking at, you know, anthropological information, art history information, social policy, government policy information, geography, all these kinds of things. And to learn about the circumstances he was in, to try and get some understanding not only of what he was doing, but why he was doing it, maybe how he was feeling about it. He was very descriptive in his interviews and he rarely said, I felt this or felt that. He would more say, I did this and then I did that. And so there's an element of, uh, you know, what's missing amongst all of that. And again, through that more formal, you know, research process, which I might otherwise not been aware of, I had to push myself to try and think, well, what are the kind of motivations within his life that might cause him to take a particular course of action? And of course, that leads into then I need to understand more about Aboriginal culture. And some of that I got from Aboriginal people when I was out on my field trips. Some of it I got through anthropological studies, you know, for example, the work of uh, now Professor Fred Myers in New York, who lived in a Pindaby community just west of Papunya for a couple of years to learn about their culture. And in fact, a lot of that he did through learning about their art, sitting down with the men as they painted, listening to their stories, getting their descriptions. And because he learned Pindaby, which I didn't, in other words... <laughs> That's another gap in my approach. He was able to bring a lot of their knowledge into the written form to educate people like me. So self-education is part of the, the biography process when it involves a person from another culture. You can't talk about his life without talking about who he was as a cultural being. Within men's ceremonial practice and ritual, there are aspects of knowledge and performance which they deem to be sacred and it's therefore secret and can't be exposed to people other than themselves. So a lot of what we might call Namarari's ceremonial or ritual life is not available to me and I shouldn't pursue it anyway. And so I couldn't understand him from that point of view except to say that that's an important part of his life and should be recognised. There's three aspects of that, of the cultural milieu, as you say, that are driving forces in the life of someone like Namarari. So the first of these is the Jukapa. This gets translated and called dreaming or dream time, which are terms I don't think are particularly helpful. Mm. So Jukapa is the overall philosophy, the creation stories, the law, the meaning of life, the structure of life within that society. And people are born into the Jukapa, they live under the Jukapa. It's, it's everywhere. So that's a driving force for Namarari's understanding of himself, his identity, his world, and how he should behave and what he needs to learn to become a man. Then there's Nura. Nura means place or can mean camp, it can mean home. So everywhere in the desert, every Every, uh, you know, every rock hole, every hill, every tree, every little rocky outcrop, every indentation in a rock that collects water has a name. And all these named places, you know, we can think of as Nura. 
So, for example, for Namurari, he's the master from Manpi, that's the title of the book, because he was born at Manpi. Manpi is a, is a shallow rock hole in between sandhills southeast of Kintore. So that's important Nura for him. You know, that's the place he, that he attaches himself to emotionally more than any other. And then the third component after the Jukapur and the Nura is Walcher. And Walcher is family in a, in a sense that mightn't be equivalent to, you know, Western European notions of family. Family is very important. Who your close kin are is, is very important. So when I then understood more about that, I could go through Namurari's paintings, for example, and uh, through the catalogue raisonné research I did, looking at all the original field notes and certificates, and think which of the places he paints the most, which of those places appear most in his stories. And surprise, surprise, it's places like Manpi and Nunman. Manpi, as I said, is his birthplace. It's also the two kangaroo dreaming place. So that's the Jukapa connection. That's his inheritance in terms of creation uh, accounts of, of how all we, those Pindabi people, came into being. And uh, Nunman is where he built his outstation. Uh, it's more complicated than that. In the late 1980s, when the Pindabi people returned from Papania, got out of Papania, they didn't like it, to get back to their own country. So I, instead of trying to just look at it, oh, he became a stockman, then he went to Haas Bluff, and then he went to Papania, and then he became a painter. That's not really giving an understanding of, of what his motivations were. And a lot of times he did something because he was motivated, motivated by family. That was his reason for doing something. You do mention in the book uh, there are four paths to understanding your subject towards knowing more about or, or learning more about Namurari. You talk about these four things, and one of them is key, and you mentioned it there, visiting and experiencing the places that were important to him. What did you, you know, as his biographer, what did you experience when you went to those places? Well, that was very important, actually. I initially had no idea how I could get myself out to the Western Desert to see those kinds of places. It was a, it was a bit of a dream. and. By good fortune, in 2007, March 2007, Panya Tula, which we spoke about, opened its new art centre at Kintor or Wollongaroo. So Kintor is about 500 kilometres west of Alice Springs, just before you hit the WA border. It's a modern-day Pinnaby community. And I was able to join a group from Sydney to go out to that opening. So that was my first trip out to the desert. And... Uh, so I went to Kintore, where Namurari lived uh, a lot of the last part of his life, and drove through the desert, you know, these long, straight gravel roads with seemingly nothing on either side. Of course, now and again, you do pass magnificent ranges and so on. And on that trip, I Daphne Williams was there. And one morning, there was a weekend at Kintore, and Daphne said to me, oh, there's Elizabeth over there. Now, I knew that Elizabeth was Namurari's widow. Uh, they got together in the 1970s. They had three children. And Daphne went and introduced me to Elizabeth, Elizabeth Marks Nakamara. Uh, hello, Elizabeth, if you're listening. And that was the beginning of meeting several of Namurari's relatives in the communities in which he had lived the second half of his life, which is to say Haas Bluff, Papania, Mount Liebig and Kintore. 
And just as an aside, in 1930, none of those communities existed. There was no physical whitefellow settlement in any of those places. And Namurari lived at all of them and was part of the creation and, and the life in all of those places. So anyway, I um, was able to go out to those places and on occasion with Namurari's relatives who I'd also met, uh, such as a son, grandsons, granddaughters, and the, the, some of them took me out to the sites in the desert that were in Namurari's paintings or in his story of when he was travelling as a child. So the thing was that what up until then had been names on a piece of paper, you know, Manpi, Nuchu, Pucha, Murunchi. They became real. Yes. It's, um, it can be emotional to think of. Uh, these places which were important to him. There was a promise, I think, made to Namarari's widow. I remember one day asking Hetty Perkins, for advice, and I said, how am I going to introduce myself to an Aboriginal woman? I mean, what am I going to say about I'm wanting to do something about her husband? I mean, what am I going to do? And, of course, I was looking for some advice, and without remembering what happened, I'm kind of guessing that Hetty would have just smiled and said, well, you're going to have to work that out, aren't you? Anyway, sitting with Elizabeth, I wasn't sure how she would respond to the idea that this uh, white fellow wants to write a story about her husband. But to my very pleasant surprise, she just began telling me stories about him. She began telling me about when she used to watch him paint. She began telling me about how he liked to paint when it was quiet. He didn't like a lot of noise around and how he would carefully clean his brush in the water and so on and so on. And so we had a, a lovely conversation. At, and one point, Daphne obviously realised we, we were getting on well, so she up and left and Elizabeth and I kept chatting. And at the end of that, I, I said something like, I'm going to write a book about your husband for all the world to see. That was the promise. There are so many obstacles to undertaking this kind of in-depth research into the life of, of, a, of a senior Aboriginal man, let alone any Aboriginal person, for a non-Indigenous person to undertake. Were, were those obstacles ever... It's too much. Did you ever? Did you ever think I can't keep this promise? I kept thinking that you know that one day I've I've got to show that book to Elizabeth. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll be another white fella who's let down another Aboriginal person, and you know we didn't need any more of that. So you prepared a catalogue raisonné, which is what you were talking about. Where you, I guess where you document every single known artwork. Yeah, uh, that's really important work in in trying to uh, establish the biography of an artist like Namurari. I catalogued over 700 of his paintings. His career went from 1971 at Papania to 1998 when he was living at Kintour. 
So by cataloging the paintings and getting access to the records, I was able to see what was the, you know, let's just say what was the, the name of the painting, what was the name of the site, was the dreaming story mentioned. And I couldn't get a hold of all the images because there's some images, most of them I, I still can't find. They're, they've gone out to private collections and, you know, they've kind of vanished. But with, with the rest of the work, I could begin to analyse the paintings and the subject matter so I could learn, for example, in the late 1980s, the early 1990s, when he'd moved from Papanya back to Nunman, the outstation near Kintor, as a lot of the Pindity families had done, the number of dingo dreaming, Papa Jukabur, and the number of kangaroo dreamings went up considerably. And of course, they're the sites that are right near him in his country. So surprise, surprise, he was motivated to do paintings about those important subjects, having relocated there and, and feeling the presence of the place again for himself. I could also look at how many paintings he was doing per year. So there's a chart in the book about his annual output year by year because I, I simply counted them up year by year. And that, you know, for example, in 1975, I could only find five paintings when he was living at Brown's Board, little uh, New Pinneby community, little west of Haas Bluff. Why was there only five in a whole year? In the early 90s, in one of the years, there was 70-something paintings and that coincided with when he was winning art awards. So... You know, there's another factor. And then very fortunately, uh, Paul Sweeney, who took the photograph of Namarari that's on the front cover of the book, also had a video camera and did a little bit of video work in the mid-90s at Kintor. One of the people he did some video videoing of was Namarari while he was painting. So for the first time, I was able to sit and watch on screen as he painted. And that really hooked me into the fact that he was so careful, so meticulous, so slow, so methodical. And, you know, that was part of his technique, part of his practice. And, of course, people reading biographies want to know about, you know, the artist, their career, their practice, their technique, their compositions, their design, their motivations, their colours, their brushes, all these kinds of things. And so by going into those different sources of data, the paintings as data, the video film as data, the art records as data, and interviewing Papanya Tula's staff. I interviewed a series of staff right across Namarari's career so I could ask them, what did you think of the man? Did you see him painting? What was his approach to life? You know, can you tell me your experience of him? I was able to kind of piece together that, you know, those art career chapters. Call. I was talking uh, to his son, adopted son, in fact, uh, Keith Butler Jungarai at Papanya one day. I'd only just met him. I'd only just introduced myself and I said, you know, can I talk about, can we talk about your father? And we sat down on this dusty cement veranda at Papanya for a couple of hours and he, he was smoking rollies and, and I was taking notes. And at the end of it, he said, he said to me, that old man had a big mob of dreamings in his head. And that stuck. That you know, that's that might be as much as we need to know about Namarari. I'm just looking at an image of his final painting of Manpi, his 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 Ngura, his homeland, the place that was so deeply important to him. Particularly that 
kind of painting, paintings of Manpi, uh, some of them are just um, repetition of sand hills and uh, with, you know, the, the intervening vegetation and so on. And now and again, you get a little kind of bump in the sand hill, like a little twist or a turn because sand hills aren't straight forever. And when he talked about Manpi in his interviews, he would, he would say, you know, that, that place of mine, there's many sand hills. There's a sand hill, then another one, then another one, then another one, then another one. And because as a child, he walked those sand hills up and down uh, numerous times uh, with his family. And so the, the, the physicality of the place is, is so embedded in his memory that, you know, that he paints it. He just wants to put all those sand hills in the picture because that's his home. Namarari, for you, is, is, is the one. And I want to get back to the spirit of, of, of Namarari and, and why, why him? He was a person who grew up in the same Australia as me, same Australia in inverted commas, but had such a, such a profoundly different life experience. I mean, I didn't live through assimilation. I didn't live through colonisation. I didn't live in, um, in, in a place called the desert, which, which I personally thought was, you know, an arid kind of a wasteland. And so, you know, I'm, I'm drawn to him as a person who seems to be different and and I'm getting curious to kind of know what that was, what kind of a life he led and, and what that might have meant. So perhaps I just knew enough about him to be more curious and uh, enough about him to be fascinated. And he's not a better or worse person or a better or worse artist, you know, than, than all, all of his contemporaries. But I guess I must have just thought, you know, I'll write about one. <laughs> that might be enough. <laughs> moment when Alec breaks down and reveals the deep emotion behind this project came as a complete surprise to Daniel and to me. Later, I asked Alec what it was about and his reply via email was non-committal and didn't shed any light on what moved him so much at that point. He may not be able to explain his response, but somehow he managed to earn the trust of Mick's widow and other members of his community, and that is a truly remarkable achievement. He did more than keep his promise. Daniel Browning is a Bundjalung man. I'd like to thank him for making this episode of Life Sentences possible. Oh, and an update on one of our earlier guests. I'm very pleased to say that Mark Mordew has signed a contract to write Volume 2 of his biography of Nick Cave. It will be called Dark Star and will cover Cave's years in London, Berlin and Sao Paulo. And it's due out in 2024. Life Sentences is produced on Darawal Country by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Pipewolf Media. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown.